In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron. We both do. Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it, swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, They'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia, as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So the equipment is top of the line kick-ass stuff as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can with another edition of Lunatic Fringe and a friendly face on the other side of the line. We're jumping straight into it. Who the fuck are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Jason Russell and I'm a full-time skydiver. I, uh, what do I do? I compete in four-way VFS, four-way vertical flying, uh, formation skydiving, and uh I guess, what do I do? A lot of times when people say, what do you do? That means, what do you do for work? Um, and uh, my wife and I, Steph, are on the team together. We do a lot of skydiving-related events. We work for we're contractors to the military. So you stay busy. Yeah, when we're, yeah pretty busy. Uh, <laughs> next, uh, I mean, when you, you know, when we were talking about setting up this, uh, this meeting I had today, and then the next day I have available is about 15 days from now where I'm not, I'm not, 
booked solid where an hour is not going to work. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, and I know it. Uh, if uh, if you start quibbling about whether or not an hour is going to make it, then you jump on whatever opportunity you've got. <laughs> yeah, so, staying busy. So uh, um, we'll, uh, there's a couple of things you just brought up that I'm going to definitely want to get back to. But right now, I want to start like I always do by jumping you back to the beginnings of your time, not necessarily just in skydiving, but in anything mm-hmm. that the general public would consider extreme. Like, how did you get into this lifestyle? Well, uh, I was working and living in, in uh, I was living in North Denver and I was racing motocross, which I did for quite a while. Uh, and it was really starting to take a toll on my body. And I was kind of at a, a point uh, where I was doing real well in Colorado in uh, my motos, but uh, not on the national level. I, I mean, the guys that were doing well in Colorado and on the national, they would go to the national level and, and get just, you know, stomped. And, and mm-hmm. I wasn't even beating those top guys at the time. So after my fourth knee surgery or while I was recovering, uh, a buddy of mine that uh, he and I just, skied together kayak together got into a couple bar fights together <laughs> um we just uh he he messaged me that he'd been on semester at sea and he'd done a skydive in south africa in johannesburg and said hey when i get back to town i'd really like to learn to skydive do you want to you want to go with me and it kind of coincided with when i was going to be done with that knee surgery so um I mean, it's an interesting choice that you went from motocross because it was beating your body up and decided to become a longtime professional skydiver. Well, I mean, a lot of people say that, but motocross is really fucking dangerous, man. And, of course. And, uh, I mean, I, I was just constantly injured. And, and uh, you know, when Steph and I first got together, she made a comment about um, she had never broken a bone. And I think I broke 17 in one wreck. <laughs> you know, just like... Uh, yeah, it's tough on your body. And skydiving, I I've, uh, I've had a concussion once uh, from from hitting a wing on exit, and uh, and I've rolled an ankle. Um, but otherwise, you know, that's been, been pretty good. That's pretty damn good. Seventeen fucking breaks in one wreck. What the hell did you do? Uh, they were mostly ribs. I uh, I was I had been warming up at the track that that we were going to race on the weekend. I had been there all week. I was a bartender in Vail, and I. Was uh, you know, that didn't, I worked nights and so I could come down during the day and, and, uh, and ride. And I did every day. And then I, of the week prior, and then I, I got to the race late. Cause I, of course I was up till four in the morning the night before. And, and, uh, so I pulled on to the last chance warm up. And I mean, there's the last chance warm up is a zoo. There's, I mean, there were kids on fifties and I'm, I think at the time I was riding a 400 and, uh, so I burned out and I was, I was leading the warm up lap and there was a huge, uh, it's called a camelback, like a, a step up and then a little bit of flat and step down. And, and if you don't clear it the right way, you're, you're kind of going to bounce into nowhere because there's a big down slope. And, and so I, I had been hitting it all weekend and, and prior to the race, but it required a wide open fifth coming out of the corner um to to make that and in my class nobody was i mean i I would take multiple seconds off of every lap just the fact that i was doing that one thing and uh i unloaded in fifth gear and they they the night the morning of the race they put a rhythm section into that straightaway um and so i didn't really even look up until i hit it uh and i it was a double triple double and i hit the upslope of the last double um and uh oh. just wrecked myself oh <laughs> uh, it was it was a rough one <laughs> god that's got to be horrible too because i mean y- you kind of know i suppose it's like skydiving when you're when you put yourself in the corner under canopy you kind of know ahead of time oh fuck here i am yeah. this is it so you had to know this is gonna suck oh yeah you, you know i'm i'm going 60 something miles an hour going through the air where i didn't mean to be going through the air and uh yeah, a couple seconds of uh, lead time before that impact. Oh, man. Well, I love that uh, your skydiving career got started when you were healing up from a knee surgery. I mean, usually it's uh, usually at least it's a few months into their skydiving career that they end up healing up from a knee surgery. So where did you make that yeah. first jump? Uh, that was June 2002. And I had a buddy of mine in college in uh, 90, 92 or 93 actually – I don't know how he found out about it. We were going to school in Madison, Wisconsin, and and he said, "Hey, let's go do a, a tandem skydive over the weekend." 
So in, in around that year, I was actually my first jump, but I don't say I started skydiving until 2002. I did, mm -hmm. we did one static line from three and a half thousand feet. Um, but then I, I really started jumping in 2002. So w what was it about it that, uh, that kind of grabbed you by the ball, so to speak? I mean, was there one aspect or was it just the whole thing? Well, no, I mean, I thought it was going to be fun. My, you know, my buddy was pretty excited about it. And once we started, I was, I was excited, but, um, when, I don't know how many jumps I had, not very many, 10 or 12. And I was, I was in the office, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just manifest for another jump. And the, the DZ manager was in there and they were showing a video on like a little tablet of a French group of French guys who, who did a, a FS jump off of base jump. Um, mm. And at the time I, I wasn't aware of base jumping really. Um, and I certainly didn't know what formation scouting was. And so they're, they're looking at it and I'm kind of looking over the shoulder. The, the manager's like, oh man, they're turning points on a base jump. And I said, what do you mean turning points? What does that mean? Um, and he said, oh, you know, there's there's competition in skydiving and, you know, turning points is like you're scoring points. They're probably, there's no points here, but th that's what that's what I mean. Mm. And I said, oh, what do you mean competition in skydiving? What is that? And he so he just kind of started describing and about 20 jumps later, I was on a belly team uh, with my buddy <laughs> uh, because he and I were both like, I don't know how other people are built, but I am built that if we're going to do something, number one, I want to be better, but then number two, I want to be better than you. Sure. Um, and so I, that we were all in at that point. That So just a random exposure to the competitive aspect of skydiving. So I was going to say you enjoyed skydiving, but it, it hadn't, uh, it hadn't gotten its claws into you until you realized that you could win <laughs> at skydiving. <laughs> I can compete at this. And I mean, it was really early in our career and I'm sure, you know, we would, we would have stuck with it long enough to find out in any case, it was just kind of like, Pretty early, I was like, "Hey, Graham, we can compete at skydiving." Did you know that? That's cool. No. <laughs> let's let's go. That's cool. Now, do you think that your yeah. your time in motocross gave you a, a, a maybe a stronger um, coping skills in regard to the uh, trepidation and fear in regard to learning skydiving? Um, I mean, maybe the uh, I, I mean, I know everybody's built differently, and I, I don't know how this will come out, but um th throughout the course of, like as a for instance Steph my wife she's well is self-admitted she's afraid of everything mm. and um and yet she does things uh which I find really much more impressive because I, I can't it's hard for me to think of something that I'm scared of when it just mm. just in in general theory terms um uh, like certainly not anything snakes spiders some of the things that people are generally scared of but then I just, I wouldn't say I'm fearless. I don't think that, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's not of normal things like a hot air balloon ride or bungee jumps or, you know, those are all things that I've done and, and, uh, you know, stepping over the edge was never a problem. Sure. Sure. Well, now what time, what age did you say you got started in motocross? That was about 20 to 30. About 10 okay. years. So actually, I mean, not I had ridden young. a lot when I was young. Uh, well, I I started riding when I was much younger, but I didn't start racing competitively until then. Because I've talked to other people that had started what can be considered borderline extreme sports motocross, most certainly being one of them. Uh, and you start yeah. at that young age where we're all fearless and you got rubber bones and you're indestructible. Mm -hmm. And they've kind of carried that through um, their lives a bit. Um, but the majority, myself included, of, of skydivers that I know are like Steph in that a lot of shit scares me, but I do it anyway, part, and that's partially probably why I get a bigger buzz out of it. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, uh, that's the definition of bravery. Is, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're scared of something, and yet you do it anyway. And so that, that again, to me, is way more impressive than the way that I feel about, you know, myself jumping, which is like, oh, fuck, I yeah cool let's go do it sure um, uh so i yeah so your your uh time in the sport got started thinking pretty much straight away about competition um you've ended up competing and working at high levels in the sport for a very long time though so where did where did that transition go from being a you know a, a fun jumper that wanted to compete to working your way into being a proper full-time skydiver 
Well, it was a little bit, I, I guess, serendipitous at the time. That's not what it felt like. But um, uh, I mean, my lifestyle for a long time was was working at bars. And um, and that was great because I also I liked being outdoors, uh, skiing and rock climbing and, and kayaking and, and, and just tons of I mean, that's one of the beauties in Colorado of, of being here is, is there's just so many things to do. Uh, and so that, you know, that lifestyle played very well into that. Uh, and it wasn't, I would say I was, I was into skydiving heavily and it, it, bartending allowed me to go do that. I owned a bar, um, for about five years and, and I, I did own it when I was, uh, starting to skydive, which, so that gave me a lot of, uh, disposable income, mm. so to speak, without incriminating myself too much to the government. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, then I got a job at the tunnel in South Denver, um, and that sort of started my uh, skill set moving forward. Uh, and then, um, sadly, I was then fired from the tunnel about four <laughs> years later. Uh, yeah, about four years later. Um, <clears throat> but then that kind of propelled me and Steph. She had been offered a job in Abu Dhabi at the, the very old outdoor tunnel that they had um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the history of that tunnel, but they basically, somebody flew in a tunnel. There was one that was going to go into a mall in New Jersey, kind of the old outdoor Orlando style way, sure. way back. And then the, the order for the mall got canceled uh, and Abu Dhabi bought it. It sat in crates for seven years on the tarmac, which wow. I'm sure being a person who spent some time in the Middle East, that doesn't shock you. That can't happen. Sure. Um, and then they put it together and it was absolutely terrible. Like you could, you could belly fly, you could kind of back fly. There's no power. It's, you know, it's, it's the middle East in the summer. It's outdoors. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it, uh, but on the positive side, um, right after we got fired or right before we got fired, Steph, uh, cause Steph got fired at the same time over drama. Um, but, uh, Steph got offered a job there for five grand a month no expenses. Uh, they pay all the flights, they pay housing because there were, Steph was the first female IBA talent instructor. Mm. Um, and they needed, uh, they needed that, uh, sure. to, to be able to take women into the tunnel. Um, and she turned it down, but then circumstances changed and she took it. And then a few months later, uh, when they had another opening, the, the manager that had hired her knew me as well. Um, and I got a job. And then uh, that was sort of, the, I guess that was the break of like, I'm not bartending anymore. I'm I'm kind of all in on skydiving. Sure. Then, yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of the proper transition, right? I mean, I kind of yeah. did a similar thing in that I ended up working in the Vegas tunnel and mm. the Vegas tunnel was my segue into becoming a full-time member in the sport and, and working in the sport as well. Um, I did not, of course, start out by heading straight to the Middle East and, what could be a very profitable uh, position for our, our sport. I mean, anybody yeah, else listening sure. knows that uh, um, skydiving, at least certainly to start skydiving is not what you would consider a high profile, high paying job. <laughs> no, no. You, I think it's a, there's a niche community in skydiving that are probably making it work pretty well. Um, but that's, you know, it takes a lot to get to that point in my opinion. Uh, sure. Now, what did you oh, think yeah, going, I mean, sorry. going from going from Colorado to um, Abu Dhabi of all places in an outdoor tunnel that would be in the summertime, like flying over a hairdryer? Uh, that must yeah. have been uh, quite a shock. Yeah, it was it was pretty different. I had already in my life done quite a bit of traveling um, internationally, so it, I guess it wasn't uh, totally unexpected. Uh, and Steph had been there during a summer. So I had, you know, we had been talking, uh, similar to this is, uh, I don't think it was, we, we did FaceTime. I don't think zoom was a thing until COVID, but, uh, yeah, but you know, I, I mean, I got to basically be mentally prepared because she was already experiencing all of it, uh, and just kind of relating it to me, how, how it was going. Sure. So, uh, yeah, pretty well. Pretty now this was before the kickoff of, of Scott F Dubai though, correct? Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Steph went over in 2008 and um, I followed in very early 2009. Uh, and yeah, we, there was a, 
in 2009, there was a, a meet over there, the first DIPC, mm. which was basically just a swoop meet over the sort of the inlet there that was, I think, on the south, southwest side of the runway. Okay. Um, yeah, they just had people kind of swoop, swoop into the water and get picked up, I believe. Or maybe they swooped up onto the beach. I, I, I didn't compete, and I, I don't remember exactly how it went. Mm. Um, but uh, we were still in Abu Dhabi. We drove up uh, because there was a helicopter that had been used for the meet that was, I guess, still around for some reason. And just a random uh, – it might have even been Sherry Alejalon. Uh, yeah. Uh, Omar's wife, who was yeah. kind of setting that up, and you paid – a certain amount of money and you got to skydive from a helicopter. So we went up there for a weekend and did a couple of days, but there was no skydive by. Um, and then it was just over. Uh, and a few, I don't know, months later, we knew there was a private tunnel that the crown prince of Dubai had. Um, and uh, that meant that he had instructors, but that was all we knew. And then a few months after we were up there, they, they had sort of a mass firing or maybe the contract ended for all of the instructors. They didn't renew any of the contracts, but they did ask a couple people that we knew to come work there and they agreed. And then kind of either before they started or right as they were starting, they said, Hey, why don't you guys come up and just fly with us? Cause it's a fast tunnel. Um, and we did. And mm -hmm. there were a couple of Arabic guys there that, we, they were already flying and we shook their hands and sat down and Steph and I went and kind of did our flying, which was uh, reasonably good. And uh, I mean, the, the two Arabic guys were Nasser and the sinus and uh, nobody said that though. <laughs> um, so we, we, we got out and Nasser introduced himself. Of course, I mean, it was his name and it, did, it didn't mean anything at the time right. who he was, uh, but he said, Hey, would you guys be willing to come work here? <laughs> and so, well, maybe. Um, so we chatted about it, and it's, a couple days later, said, "Yeah." It's so funny because uh, you say those two names, and for anybody that, uh, um, especially back in the day, granted, I was not there at the beginnings. I came a few years after everything had uh, really been kicking off, but. Um, you say those two names in a drop zone uh, setting, and you would never know that those two guys are not just regular tunnel flyers and regular jumpers because i never saw either of them in anything other than blue jean shorts and t-shirts and and skydive dubai baseball caps and you'd never know that you were talking to you know the i think he's the head of the sports federation now and his highness you'd never yeah. know so it was really fucking cool yeah yeah i totally agree i mean i mean for just like you said for what those guys do on a regular basis just very down to earth. And sure. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's hard, I guess, to separate a little bit of what I remember of those guys from that first moment of meeting them. Um, but uh, yeah, both just really kind of chill guys as far as I well, can tell. And so you guys were kind of there for not only the beginnings of, but the golden era in um, <laughs> both the tunnel and the skydiving and skydive Dubai. Cause I mean, without putting too much sugar on it, man, Skydivers had the golden ticket for a while when when everything had just gotten started. Um, and you got you kind of got to see that from the 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 beginnings. Yeah, for sure. We I think Steph and I were employees like five and six or six and seven, something like wow. that. Uh, so there was no skydive Dubai. All that we were employed for was to teach his highness how to fly in the tunnel. And so that was our job. Uh, and it was, as you might expect, with someone that has to do a variety of things the way that he does, we, we might get scheduled two days a week. And uh, and then also they had said, I mean, there were there were nobody working there and there are five or six of us. And and so Nasser had said, you guys, they know you at the entry gate, at the security gate. You can just come fly whenever you want and <laughs> Steph, Steph and I were kind of like uh like whenever we want yeah yeah as much as you want just go fly it doesn't matter okay. <laughs> so you know back in the early days 
uh, we might be at the tunnel for eight or nine hours a day and nobody else would show up. And the, you know, the, the guys that work there would just bring us lunch and carrot juice and, right. you know, food and drinks are just coming to us and unlimited free tunnel time. Yeah. yeah. And sign me up. What do I have to pay? All right. <laughs> no, I'm getting paid. All right. Uh, well, all right. Oh, um, I re- and you know, it morphed into a lot of things later, but in the beginning it was just, Hey, come fly. And it was, it was the golden ticket. Oh yeah. Well, I, I mean, I remember um, pre and post um, Scott of Dubai hitting the, uh, the radar for the sport around the world. And it was where the hell is Dubai and what is that? Is it a city or a country or is um, I, I had no idea. And then all of a sudden it was a, oh my God, all the most badass flyers are starting to appear out of this place called Dubai. And I had no idea why this concentration of incredible flyers would come from one spot until I got there and uh, Highness's Tunnel was still um, being offered up to Scott of Dubai staff to go fly. And I think the first year, six months to a year that I was there, I had logged hours and hours of, of tunnel time in his private tunnel because we were invited to be guests flying in that tunnel as members of the staff. Um, and then it all kind of clicked. I went, oh, well, yeah, if you're logging uh, as much tunnel time a day as most people are in an office, <laughs> your learning curve is going to yeah. be exponential. You know, it's going to be quite quick. Um, but it was also a very humbling experience for me coming from what I thought was a pretty rich tunnel background and getting there and watching everyone flying going, oh, shit, I fucking suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that, there, there is that. Um but it's not that you suck and it, it that's not actually true. It's just that no matter what level you get to, there's usually somebody that's still just a little bit better. And, okay. and I mean, that's the beauty of competition, I guess, but man, that, you know, as a, for instance, when I, when I talk to people about tunnel flying, I'm, I think I'm quite good at the thing that we do, but then it doesn't take very long to start exposing the flaws in my flying. And if you put me next to somebody who's a good dynamic flyer, you're going to see that I'm not that great of a flyer. <laughs> and, uh, and, and for most people, when I talk to them, oh, how many jumps you got or how much tunnel time? And I, I, I mean, jumps and tunnel, I, this is kind of a rough number at this point, but mostly what I say is, look, if you knew how much it really was, the only thing that would go through your mind is, Ooh, he should probably be better. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's yeah. actually probably the thing that I learned the most by going to Dubai is that the numbers that you equate with your time in the sport, whether it be tunnel time or jumping mean very little when it comes to the overall skill of the athletes that are competing these days. It's crazy. Yeah. It really is. Well, when, yeah, when you, when you can get like, I mean, it's such an easy example, but the Wittenberg kids who oh. started flying, when they're so young that you know Noah didn't even want to go in and Mike had to offer him ice cream at the end of the session if you fly for another 30 minutes we'll go get an ice cream you know and and those kids that also had a, an opportunity that was i mean is similar to mine except they didn't have to work they just got free tunnel time all the time and yeah then then the product is these tremendous flyers that are nine and 10 or whatever they were. And they're yep. going to, they're going around the world and competing against adults that have dedicated their life to this stuff. And, and you're just like, man, I'm, I'm not that good. Oh yeah. Well, I remember watching that Vimeo video that uh, um, Mike produced of, of uh, them and, and Haley. yeah. And Haley uh, flew in nine was the, the name of that video. Yeah. So for anybody listening, you want to see an amazing kid flying, look up that video and it's quite old now, but the flying is still intense. Um, and I remember watching that video and it's the first time in my life I ever hated a nine-year-old because <laughs> she was so talented and had such a, a, a happy outlook on everything. And on top of that is just doing this incredible flying in a way that I'll never be able to replicate in a tunnel. And uh, it was awe-inspiring and angering all at the same time. And it was, you know, I mean, when you've got that kind of exposure – Granted, having your father being one of the founding members of Team Maktoum doesn't yeah. hurt. Doesn't hurt. Yeah. No, they. I mean, but to your point, it it is kind of a thing now where tunnels are everywhere, and kids can get started really young. Yep. And 
despite your best efforts as an adult, it's it's just hard to replicate the learning that can happen when you're five, six, seven, and you totally fearless and you do your bones do bend. And, the, you know, the tunnel that we see is a, a 15 footer or 14 footer. They see is this is like the Abu Dhabi tunnel. It's 30 feet, you know, right. and, and it's so big because I'm so small. Um, so, yeah, it's I think it's a it's an evolving world for sure. It is kind of interesting to see, like Kaylee, I, just because we're talking about the Wittenberg kids. I saw Noah recently uh, at the Colorado, New Colorado Springs Tunnel um, doing some coaching, and, and he's not a little kid anymore. He's a freaking he's an cool adult. man. Yeah, yeah, he's a big dude. Um, and I, I believe Kaylee's in college now. Uh, but just to see, you know, do they stick with it? Do they get burned out? Um, because you know, kids. I, we had when I was an instructor in Colorado. We had a couple kids, the Tanucci kids, and they were they were, to my knowledge, some of the first kids to to really get good. Parents really spent a lot of money, uh, personal coaching, live-in coaches. Like these guys are flying all the time, and they were going to stuff and winning. In fact, they beat me and Steph in a tunnel comp in a two-way comp, uh, one of our first ones, and and then they burned out, and mm. then they went like the I think the daughter is is maybe doing commercials or something and the kids in college and they don't they don't fly or jump sure. and, and so that's that's sort of an interesting can be sort of an interesting component of it and i don't i don't know how the wittenberg kids will, will fare or how other you know kind of tunnel tunnel kids will will uh persevere in the sport or if they sure will. sure well you know it's with the wittenberg kids um i get to see uh, i follow both of them and and uh, the wittenbergs on you know social media and stuff and you see these amazing videos of them speed flying down these gorgeous mountains in france and doing all these incredible things so i think the the burnout factor may be um kind of fade off a little bit because they do so much more than just that um but yeah. i talked to uh, um anna and holly blue from the edge uh, actually an episode that's probably going to come out right before this one. And both of them growing up as drop zone brats pushed back on skydiving because it's the standard. You're a kid. Fuck my parents. I don't want to do what they do kind of thing. And then, of course, they go, oh, wait, it, that is kind of badass. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so yeah. I think it kind of depends too. And the Wittenbergs have so many different things going on that they're kind of the poster children or poster family for um, keeping it spicy throughout, you know, and really, really having a great dynamic. Yeah, hopefully they can stick with it. I mean, that's a lot of talent in a couple of kids. I mean, yeah, not children. They're yeah, they're adults. So yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Very talented. So now when you and I met, um, I came on as a pilot for Skydive Dubai and you were running the whole show at the time. How the hell did that happen? Uh, well, some behind the scenes, I guess. I, I mean, the, the simple answer is that Nasser asked me to do it. And um, I think the behind the scenes, there were some things that had happened in the past with uh, – I don't know, just issues that had come up that needed uh, somebody to step up and say, hey, that's not right. Uh, we need to do this the right way. A um, couple of safety-related skydiving things where I was, safety is a big issue for me, and I was pretty vocal about it. And then a couple of, um, I don't I don't really want to talk about it, but behind-the-scenes sure. things that, that happened where I stood up and said, hey, this isn't right, and sure. was willing to kind of stick my neck out for – that's, doing things the right way. I mean, that's kind of tough in that culture, right? Because I mean, um, especially as an expat, and I spent a decade uh, in Dubai and and uh, walked away being thrilled with the fact that I had decided to go there. But you certainly have to know how to interact, and you certainly have to know your place in the culture and in the sport. So when you do voice your concerns, boy, you got to be you, you have to do it a very specific way in order to be taken seriously, right? I agree. And, and in retrospect, it, it, the same things that sort of made me stand out as someone willing to say those things also was part of my downfall uh, that uh, when I didn't like the way things were going, I said it. And and uh, as exactly as you said, knowing my place, which I came to understand when they asked me to be the CEO, I, I don't think I was power hungry about it. Just I wanted to steer things in a really nice direction. Skydive Dubai was kind of blossoming and we had these different teams that that 
could have, with the support that we had, could have propelled Skydive Dubai to the, you know, some of the top echelons of competition, which I, I think they, we eventually did. Uh, but CEO was mostly just a title uh, for signing paperwork and um, <laughs> taking responsibility for things when they became unpopular. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so I, I don't think I understood that part right away. And it, it took some interactions of me saying what I thought and then getting sort of dick slapped <laughs> saying, hey, that doesn't matter what you think. Uh, we're running the show. Um, and uh, yeah, I said, OK, well, and yeah. then it, you know. You were, you were, yeah, you were, you were fully in, in that mode by the time you and I met. It's actually funny. One of the, one of the first proper interactions that I had with you is also one of my worst ever memories in the sport, uh, not because of you. And you may or may mm. not remember this. Um, I had uh, uh, picked up a load, taken off and started getting a dizzy spell, which turned into on jump run, full blown vertigo, flying a twin otter on jump run. I got the entire load out. I'm descending as the whole plane is just spinning like a top. And I got you on the radio and tried as calmly as I could to say, Jason, I'm not feeling good. I'm a bit dizzy. I'm going to land and shut down, <laughs> hoping that that was okay. actually going to happen. And I landed, shut down, got off the plane, projectile vomited all over the place. And the only thing I remember saying to you was, I swear I haven't been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think you were probably so deep in the management side of things at times you just patted me on the shoulder and went, yep, all good and walked away. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't want a damn thing to do with that. <laughs> that all that, right. Yeah. Well, projectile vomit, not my favorite thing, but. Uh, <laughs> Certainly wasn't so my favorite thing either. How did that happen? Did you have a Meniere's disease or what? what, what a, no. A so problem or whatever? I was, I was terrified when that happened because, of course, um, vertigo is a death sentence to a pilot. I mean, that's a career sure. ender right there. Uh, I they took me to the hospital. They did a cardiac test. Uh, funny enough, was the first thing that they did. All came back clean, and eventually, the doctor I saw said, "You just caught the Dubai crud. Like you've been exposed to a shitload of germs from everywhere. It's gotten you all at once. It's probably got you clogged up sinus wise and your ears and this and that, and it spun you and made you sick. And it never happened again." Uh, had it happened again, that's when I would have been really concerned because then you're you're talking about Meniere's disease and stuff like that, which for anybody yeah. in aviation knows that's, that's I mean that's a career ender. Yeah. Well, so now, uh, how, I'm, go ahead, go ahead, please. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I'm no, no, I was just gonna. gonna uh, no, no, please interject, please. Well, I I just was gonna say that you know there's a lot of interactions that I had during that time where you know, for that couple of years, I was pretty busy. And yeah. so when, when I interacted with people, a lot of times, if it wasn't uh, vitally important to what I was doing, it, the, the thing happened. And then that sort of jumped out of my head. And um, over the years, I've had people recall those kinds of stories where I'm like, man, I have absolutely no recollection of that, but I'm glad that I didn't scream at you, stomp my feet and run off and Sure. Tantrum, well, you know? well, I, you know, it's kind of funny because I vividly remember thinking after the dust had settled for me personally, because it, it actually took a little while for me to wrap my head around that situation. I'll tell you right now, landing an airplane when you're in the middle of a vertigo uh, fit is not fun. I don't recommend it. Um, mm. So it, it stuck with me for a bit of a while. But when, when the dust settled, I was... Um, I was surprised that no one had followed up on that. Um, and it's because you guys were so damn busy. And this is when Scott of Dubai was really everywhere, all over parachutist, all over all the and magazines starting to really be all over social media and everything. Um, so it doesn't surprise me now, but then I'm like, huh. I, I, I can't believe somebody didn't make me take a, an alcohol or drug test after that one. And it was just because you guys were so damn busy that they, it didn't even hit the radar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now how long, how, how long were you in the sandbox? Uh, about five and a half years. Steph was about six and a half. Nice. Uh, something like that. Yeah. And then, you know, we, as we chatted a little bit before the, the interview, um, I think that 
taking a management job was probably the start, the beginning of the end for, for our time there. Uh, And like, there are expats that are over there that, that make it work. And I think that uh, maybe they're a little bit different personality type than mine. Uh, (laughs) uh, But mine, uh, definitely there was a finite amount of time that I could sit there asked to be in a role that it, it was just there there wasn't any actual authority there was just there was just uh responsibility sure you were um, a figurehead yeah and uh that that just was only gonna be okay for so long sure you know and and, and again we talked pre-podcast i i i left scott of dubai thrilled that i went with a, a shitload of amazing memories and a lot of gratitude for for all the uh um the things that I was able to experience and do over there. Um, but of course, like any uh, end of a t- five or 10 year career, there's always going to be gripes and there's always going to be negatives with the positives. But my, the largest thought that I ever had on leaving Dubai was I can't believe I left on my own terms and they were good and that I didn't get thrown the fuck out of the country. Cause I'm a lot like you, I don't keep my mouth shut. You know I mean? If, yeah. if, if there's something I don't like, I say it, and that's that's not really a great trait in that culture. You know, you got to learn to play with the culture that you're in, and even in, after a decade, I don't think I learned that lesson. <laughs> I definitely did not. <laughs> <laughs> well, so post Dubai, where did you transition to next? Uh, well, the, sort of 2012 and 13 for me and staff, we knew that it was wrapping up, like we this has been great, but we were missing home and, and uh, just other things that we wanted to do. Um, and so I think in 2013, uh, Rook Nelson that owns Scott of Chicago had come over to Dubai. I think he was traveling through on his way to a vacation somewhere. So he was, he was with his wife, Heidi, uh, and <clears throat> we've been friends for a while. And uh, at the time we were on teams that competed with each other. And uh, he asked us to go to lunch. And I don't know, I don't know if he had some idea on the radar or knew that, knew that we felt like we were winding down over there, but that's where the conversation went during lunch. Hmm. And uh, at the time, our VFS team was, was at a pretty good level. Uh, we were winning uh, things. We didn't, we finished second in the world meet in 2012. And then by 2013, uh, we were beating the French team that had been the world champions pretty handily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we expressed to Rook that we were thinking about leaving, and he he expressed back that, uh, hey, if you guys want to consider Chicago, we, we'd love to have you um, come there. We talked a little bit about what that might look like, and um, it just gave us another sort of piece in the puzzle of, of we can feel okay about transitioning out of here. Cause I think for a lot of people, when you, when you're in something like that, a situation like that, where you're making good money and, and we were jumping a lot, uh, the support in whatever issues that I had in the background of being the CEO on the team side, uh, you know, we were doing a couple thousand jumps a year as a team and, and as much time as we could do. And that's, that's a lot of support. Um, yeah. And it, it showed in our results, but the, there's that feeling of like, man, when we leave here, what, what are we going to do then? How are we going to, how are we going to continue this? And so that meeting with Root kind of put us at ease that it might not be the same kind of support. I mean, you know, Rook's a regular business owner that has bills to pay and um, it's not a multi-billionaire. Uh, so we we knew it was going to be a little bit different, but it, it was a, a good direction. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of funny because I would say the majority of the skydiving community doesn't have experience with Skydive Dubai, but lots of them do with Skydive Chicago. And if you ask yeah. most of the skydiving community in the world, they're going to say the top drop zone or certainly one of the top three drop zones in the world is Skydive Chicago. Um, so... Yeah. Although going from a, um, a drop zone owned by a multi-billion billion dollar company, let's say, to um, yeah. a more mom and pop family operation, that's a damn good family operation to step to. <laughs> yeah, it was a great environment, and and I mean, some of the things you know, as as you as you experience different drop zones and and sort of different skydiving cultures that exist at those drop zones, uh, certainly are 
our transition to Chicago was was really nice. Like the, mm-hmm. um, they they put a lot of emphasis on on the the safety aspect of the sport, running things efficiently. Both both things that are kind of in my wheelhouse as as far as the, I like to see them in an operation. Sure. So it was it was a great transition. Well, the nice thing, of course, is uh, outside of the business act aspect of the sport, um, the one thing that uh, the skydiving culture in Dubai shares with the rest of the world is we're a bunch of skydivers. Um, and you and I know a number of skydivers that come from every culture in the world. And at the end of the day, man, we're all just jumpers out having a good time. I'm sure, uh, having been back in the States for a number of years now, I mean, how many times do you see jumpers that you jumped and became friends with in Dubai? You know, I mean, they're everywhere. It's fantastic. Yeah. 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 It's great. Um, yeah. Exposes you to expose us to a lot of people and, and because that of that region being, you know, cent- centrally located to a lot of other regions. Uh, there's good weather in the winter. Yeah, the same. We met a ton of people over there. Just some really good connections. Uh, you know, I could start rattling off people, but uh, they're just just as you said, there are um, some great friendships that have continued beyond that time. Absolutely. So what was it like uh, standing up on top of the podium for the first time? That had to be, I mean, come on, you're talking about the culmination of a lot of hard work and a lot of years in the air. Yeah, it, the the way that it worked for us, as far as, I mean, we we had been on the podium prior to the 2016 World Meet, but in 2012 we got second, um, uh, which is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways we could finish, but second is a rough one. Um, and then in 2014 we weren't able to compete because we had represented the UAE, so that was also a really disappointing year because we we had been kicking the ass out of the French team as remarkable a team as they were, we had a, just a level of support that allowed us to, to kind of catch up with them. And um, it was pretty disappointing to, to not be able to slug it out with, with them sure. at the 2014 world meet. Um, and so 16 was our first year where we were eligible and in a good position. And that coincided with Rook bidding uh, to have the world meet at Skydive Chicago. So that mm. was, that was pretty cool in. And so of course, winning it was the culmination of, of a long process of, of trying to get to that point. Uh, for me personally, the podium is is my least favorite time. Um, I mean, it's a couple minutes of standing up in front of the crowd and and I, I work best in an environment of, of harsh criticism and insults and I want to I want to get better at what I'm doing and I don't want anybody fluffing my nuts in the process. I want to I want to know what I'm fucking up and I want to fix that thing. Sure. Um, and so standing up and being congratulated by you know, everybody that's around, it's just, it's just not my cup of tea. So nice. I, I sit up there and, and, you know, it's, uh, it's five minutes of, of uh, my life, but the 99.9% of the rest of my time being on a team is the part that I prefer. Sure. Well, you're clearly competition and goal oriented, not result oriented. I mean, results, yes, yeah. but standing on the podium is not uh, not the end all be all. It's chasing that and getting better yeah. and better. That's the cool thing, though, about the sport, right, is is it's evolving so fast and skill levels are going through the roof. And just when you think you've hit the ceiling, you realize it was just a glass ceiling and they keep fucking going up because <laughs> The shit that is being done now in the sky is stuff that 20 years ago was people were daydreaming of, and now it's commonplace. Um, yeah. So especially being at the forefront of it for so long, it's got to be a blast to not only see all the changes, but be part of them and be learning along the way. It's got to be. Yeah, it's great. And it's a constant reminder of of if I'm going to stay with it, that you know, I've got to work five times as hard. We went to the uh, the indoor world meet in Belgium last year, early last year, and it had been postponed. It was it was it happened in 2022, I think, but it was supposed to happen in 2020. But anyway, we went there, and one of our teammates couldn't go, so we had to stand in, and that's always kind of a nebulous uh, possibility of what we're going to be able to do. But when we went to the meet, I thought for sure we're not going to win. Like our stand-in is good, but it's not with our team and the the Italian team, which they had been training and they had their coach had started jumping inside uh, Mika and they were tremendously good. And I, I looked up their scores and I was training a different team and said, Oh, you're going to compete against the Italians. And then I saw their scores. I'm like, Oh, oh we're not going to beat the Italians. Uh, <laughs> and then, but the real standout in the whole meet in my mind, 
is a kid from Poland and he's 18 maybe, but he's so kind of what, what the Wittenberg kids are. But in Poland, uh, his dad is, was on the VFS team and had been taking him since he was a little kid. And now he's on the team. And we, we were joking around that fucking 18 year old was way better than me. <laughs> and, and we ended up winning the meet, uh, which, which was remarkable in itself. But then there were a couple of times where we were, I went over to the Polish team. I'm like, Hey man, I know he's your kid, but we're taking him back to the U S um, and just a, just a, a constant reminder of the evolution of the sport and where it, where it can go with, with dedication and the facilities that we have available now. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very, um, a humbling sport certainly can be a very humbling sport. I think uh, yeah. uh, probably my best moment as a jumper was discovering that I was never going to be the best and had no desire to try because it took all the pressure off of me. You know, I'm fine to fuck up a skydiver, look like shit in the tunnel because <laughs> nobody's expecting anything from me. So, <laughs> so it's easy. Now, I, I had sent you a message to get you on the podcast because I saw you uh, starting to put stuff out on social media, uh, trying to get things together for, is it an event that you got coming up? Because I don't see you post oh, very yeah. often. No, in fact, that's probably my one post for the year. Um, I just, I, I'm not, I gave up social media a while ago and I Good man. kind of feel like my life is better without it. Uh, but it, it is an excellent way to communicate to large group of people. So um when we when we came back from Dubai and, and started jumping at Scottish Chicago, Rook had, had asked me or Steph and I to take over uh, organizing the free fly organizers for Summerfest. And and that's a Summerfest is a pretty big boogie, kind of end of July, beginning of August. It's usually about 10 days long. It's one of the biggest boogies in the world, I think. Mm. Uh, the last couple of years, it's hovered a little under a thousand people. Uh, but for all the for all the people, Scott of Chicago is a huge place, and it it uh, it runs really smoothly. Uh, mm -hmm. That you know, five or six planes running at the same time, and um, getting all those people up in the air. So, and when we took over that that job of organizing the organizers, uh, I would say they were understaffed, uh, and and uh, I also wanted to change the culture a little bit. Uh, that they had been having kind of rock star organizers mm. and I, I was a boogie participant for many years and nothing, I guess, against those guys, but their, their style of organizing wasn't, wasn't what I wanted when I took over of kind of like, well, I'm taking the ninjas for today. I got my five or six people and sorry, there's just no space for you. And sure. You're not that good. And, um, and so you're not going to be able to come along. And uh, there were probably four or five organizers when I took over and uh, this, so yesterday or two days ago, I put out that post and I think I have 30 people on my list and that'll probably nice. whittle down to 25 or 26, which is where we've been at for the last six or seven years. Um, and uh, I think it goes really well. I, I try and focus on getting people who are pretty, you know, maybe 800, 1,000, 2,000 jumps and they're, they're at a point in their career where they're very happy to teach. They, they're excited about, about taking newer jumpers because the, the, probably the average jumper that comes there is somewhere between 200 and 500 jumps, something like sure. that. And then, of course, there's many people that have more than that, but if you, if you averaged it out. So, you know, there's a lot more emphasis on the beginner uh, introductory part of free flying and angle flying for us now than there was say 10 years ago when I took over. Well, that's really important, right? I mean, because uh, the the rock star ninjas can always go find their group of badasses and do exactly what they want to do all the time. You know, I mean, so for an event like uh, Summerfest, where you've got people of all kinds of ranges and experience levels, you want it to be inclusive. That's one of the yeah. reasons that people go, you know, so if you get a reputation to having a boogie, that's just a bunch of rock stars doing really cool shit and everyone else kind of floundering around trying to find people to jump with, that's not going to be a popular event. But Summerfest is by and large, the most popular, or at least one of the most popular boogies on the planet. And it's that way for a reason. So it's really cool that you're going out of your way to find uh, organizers that are looking to be inclusive of all experience levels. So it's important. Yeah, I agree. Just, I mean, those 200, 500 jump people are the, the future of the sport and getting them, you know, uh, if, if there's any indoctrination that we can do during that 10 days, it's a culture of safety and, and, um, jumping within their limits and, and planning and executing 
safe. Absolutely. Guys. So hopefully Absolutely. That's what we're doing. Well, because you never know that uh, that person with 100 jumps is the next J- Jason Russell or the next Olaf Zipser or the next Omar Al-Hijalan. You know, I mean, they're potential rock stars on every single load as long as they're kind of nurtured the way that they need to be. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I, in fact, to be honest, I, I I had that thought about a week ago when Red Bull was out here. Uh, well, not out here in Colorado. We were in Arizona for for military work and Red Bull. All, almost all of Red Bull came to Arizona and I saw Danny Roman. Mm. You remember Danny? Oh yeah. And I remember Danny from the very beginning of when he got there at Scott of Dubai, which was not our, on our way out, but maybe the last year and a half or two years that we were there. And he was kind of new tunnel instructor in, in the Dubai tunnel as a young kid with not very many jobs, him and another guy named Matt Munting. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, so to, to already be at a level that's competing at the world stage and see two guys that are just brand new and excited and talented. And, you know, now I'm talking to to Danny 10 or 12 years later, and he's on the cover of parachutist doing that. Maybe not the cover he's on the, with Pete Allen and he's, yeah. he's the wingsuiter underneath Pete surfing him on, on some XRW stuff. And, and he's on Red Bull and he's, and he's, you know, that talent that, was was pretty obvious when he was brand new is now shining through and obviously sadly matt's not with us anymore but incredibly talented guy that oh yeah that really i mean just to see the evolution of those guys that they came up as young talented guys and and then just crushed the sport with with that vibrant enthusiasm and and skill and and uh, passion was really nice to see. Sure. Well, and that's the nice, that's one of the nicest things about skydiving outside of the community is the longevity that we have in the sport, right? I mean, you can jump yeah. from, from depending on where you start jumping from 18 to 80 years old. I mean, look at Lou Sanborn did just was skydiving, what, a year or two ago? That's licensed fucking D1. You know, how many yeah. sports do you have where your heroes are with you doing the same thing? Um, so it really isn't an amazing thing. As long as you take care of yourself and you're physically able, skydiving is something that you can do your entire life, um, which just adds that much more to it because you're talking about a seasoned professional being someone that's literally been doing it for 40 years. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I mean, I, yep. Go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. Go, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, someone I'm 51 and still able to compete, uh, on a, on a good level. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a lot of, a lot of hope for the people out there that if the, you know, they can just, as you said, stick with it for, for quite a while and, and be a, a you know, a relevant part of the sport for, for sure. a lot of years. Yeah. Forever. Now, speaking of, as we wrap things up, what's up next for you guys? Uh, you're still, uh, still in the heat of competition. So is there big stuff coming up or there, are there goals in mind or is there something specific you guys are after? Well, you know, after the world meet, after any world meet, outdoor world meet, we we sit down as a team and and talk about, okay, guys, what are we doing? Because the the minimum commitment for the team is two years, yeah. uh, you know, barring some kind of crazy circumstance. And so after the last one, Dusty and Johnny, Dusty was our longtime inside flyer, and Johnny was our camera flyer. Both of them had plans that took them away from the team, um, and so we, Steph. And myself and Sam, our other inside flyer, we're we're still on board. So we committed for another two years, and so that's uh, that's where we're at as far as the team. And then once that that basic commitment level is established, then we find two new teammates, which we did. Uh, Chip Keating was a, a flyer from California, super talented, a little bit out of the out of the VFS sport, but getting back in quickly. And then uh, Nicole Senecal was. Uh, She's kind of a, she's not a younger person. She's uh, probably started skydiving a little bit older in her thirties and, but has been charging and, and setting world records and doing base jumping and women's world records and blah, blah. So we've got some new teammates. And as soon as the teammates were on the team, then the next two years just sort of falls over like dominoes as far as filling up our schedule and, and what competitions and milestones we need to, to achieve. Um, sure. So right now we're in the tunnel. We've got a, a world, indoor World Cup in Slovakia, which is in I think April. Uh, I've got my phone out for the calendar. Yeah, April nineteenth is in Slovakia, and so we're tunnel training as much as we can before then. Um, that it that uh, Belgium meet 
reinforce the idea that uh, hey guys we because there's teams that can just compete in the tunnel the way that uh, the the Polish team did does uh, if we're going to stay on top of both of those uh, facets of the sport we really got to we got to put more time into the tunnel sure um, so we're pretty focused on that until uh, until Slovakia in in April and then as soon as that's over we still have a little bit of tunnel time left but we're going to put on rigs and be ready for the season and then um, I think this this year is a world cup and that's in uh, Voss and I've mm. never been there actually so I'm super excited about that nice um, and then uh, and then the year just fills up with events uh, training between training and events it's pretty full pretty fast um, I had a team ask me hey could we get coaching from you in July and I just chuckled and said <laughs> guys my first free weekend is in December uh, so um, if you can yeah. manage that we're good yeah, so yeah, it sounds like you're going to be relatively busy for the foreseeable future. Just the way I like it. I love it. So now, how do my listeners follow what's going on with you? How do they track the team? How do they uh, find out how you guys are doing and what you guys are doing? You got social media. I know you personally don't do much social media, yeah. uh, but do you do so for the team? Uh, Steph keeps up with that. Sam, Sam, everybody's younger than me, so they all, <laughs> they all do social media. So SDC Core on Facebook, SDC Core on Instagram. Uh, I don't know if we're a TikTok team or a Snapchat team. I really don't know. Um, but uh, if you type in SDC Core to those things, then you'll probably find something. Our events generally are published in, uh, through Facebook and um, uh, like Summerfest is no exception. That's not our event, but but we continue to post it. And, um, Every year, we this year is no exception. We'll do sequential events. We'll do teaching BFS events. We'll, the the head up record is coming in 2024, and we're we're part of that organizing team. So um, we'll start doing head up skills camps and tryout camps. Every year, we do a big trip uh, with a bunch of people to the 32 foot tunnel in Abu Dhabi. Uh, this was our second year. We're we're already scheduling the the next year. Um, you know. With, tons of we're doing 20 way sequentials inside of a tunnel it's crazy <laughs> um and yeah they can follow us through all of those pa uh, places if people do get in touch with me like if you contact me facebook messenger or but I, I i do use messenger all the time hmm. um so there's there's lots of ways to get in touch with us um, I will warn people who are listening. If you ask me about scheduling stuff, I'm just going to send you this stuff so I don't fuck it up. Um, <laughs> but uh, I certainly am happy to chat about what we're doing. Uh, Dude, that's awesome, man. Well, I'll tell you what, man. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of an extremely busy schedule. I think I just approached you day before yesterday, and you're like, "Look, this is the hour I've got. Take it or leave it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, today was the day, and I'm I'm gone for the next three weeks with no time really. So nice, man. Yeah. Well, I'm super stoked that we had the time. It was great to catch up. It's been a bunch of years, but I'm really glad to see that you're doing fantastic. You're kicking ass, and I can't wait to see what comes next. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. You take care. Cool, man. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com by Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the extreme sports collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.
Well, holy shit. I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. Enjoy.